week I, I chose to focus on Paul's letter to the church in Philippi rather than looking at the gospel lesson. This morning's lesson, though, we heard the, the continuation of last week's gospel lesson. The tone of the lesson differs from that of last week. Last week's lesson described John the Baptist as he preached in the wilderness during the reign of Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod. Luke made an effort to be very specific about the time frame in which Jesus' ministry began. With all the secular attempts to downplay the existence of Jesus and the attempts to remove the Christ child from the season of Christmas, it seems that Luke knew that it was important to document what was taking place in the world at the time when John came proclaiming the coming of one who had been foretold by the prophets. While the media is not making as big a deal as in recent years, there's still a major attempt today to do away with the real meaning of Christmas in today's secular world. Granted, this year the employees at Walmart are allowed to say Merry Christmas, and the bell ringers are back with their red pots, although there are still cities where they must say Happy Holiday rather than Merry Christmas. And there's still a major struggle to make Christmas season simply a time of gift-giving and parties. This is the first time that the human settlers have attempted to attack the Christian community with their lawsuits, to have nativity scenes removed from public property, or by having Christmas music that refers to God removed from our public school programs. Now the PC police have even said that we've got to describe Rudolph is being an example of bullying. Frosty must now be called a snow person. And God forbid if anybody sings, baby, it's cold outside. This is the world that we live in today, guys. In recent years, the emphasis has been to totally remove the acknowledgement of the existence of God from the Christmas story altogether. It's crazy as it may seem to some of us, there's still numerous groups that are attempting to have Christmas removed from the calendar altogether. We would simply have a winter season of gift-giving and goodwill. Now some of you may say, well, they can't do that. But there was a time not that long ago when you'd have said the same thing in this country, that they'd never be able to, to remove the Ten Commandments from a courthouse, or to remove a judge from his position for refusing to do so. If you're unaware of what's going on in your country, or if you've just said to yourself, it doesn't really affect me, then I suspect that you might be a little like those who came out to hear John preaching by the Jordan River. Those people were aware that their lives were lacking something, and they were eager and, and anxious for someone to come and lead them to better times. But those people also thought of themselves as God's chosen people, and they were. But because of their self-image that the people had, they thought of God would treat them differently. He would judge them differently. They said, we're the descendants of Abraham. Well, we're Americans. We're Christians. We're Baptists. We're Methodists. We're Episcopalians. God's going to look at us differently, right? I don't know if we in this country would go so far as to see ourselves as God's other chosen people. But I do believe that there was a time when we saw ourselves 
as being part of a Christian nation that acknowledged a value system based on the teachings of scriptures. And we were willing to, to place our trust in God and to proclaim that trust openly to the rest of the world. We lived in a nation that was built on Judeo-Christian principles, and we were proud to acknowledge that. That was our heritage. So what was it that John said to the people about their heritage? The Jewish people truly believed that they'd be safe from any judgment simply by the virtue of the fact that they were Jews. But John told them that racial privilege stood for nothing. He said that it was a person's life not their lineage that was God's standard of judgment. This morning's gospel lesson begins with John warning the people about the judgment that awaited them in rather stern terms. But it ends with Luke's declaration that what John was preaching was really the good news. See, John preached that the people must repent before God. No matter who they were, no matter who their ancestors were, they still had to come to God with repentant hearts. He even went so far as to say, God has an axe resting at the root of the tree. John said, if you don't produce good fruit, the tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire, no matter who you are. You see, the Jewish people always thought that the day would come. The day of judgment would come, and God would judge their enemies. God would come to, to judge and destroy everyone else. John said with a loud voice, not so. Everyone will be judged, and those who have not produced good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. The message seems rather straightforward, doesn't it? And he said, that doesn't sound like good news to me. But there's more to John's message. And this is where we get the Advent story. Remember that Advent is about the coming of new things, and John then begins to tell the people about the one who has come. John tells the people that a time of redemption will come for all who embrace his message. We've talked about this season of Advent, what it means, that it's a time of repentance and reflection, and it is. But this morning, we lit the rose candle, and we acknowledge a shift of emphasis in this season of the church. This morning, we begin to think about the coming of the King, and we're called to rejoice be glad this morning. While we're called to repent, we're also made keenly aware that Christ has come into the world in order to provide us with a means of redemption. How many of you know the, the meaning of the word redemption? We talked about that in our Tuesday morning class a couple weeks ago. When a slave was purchased by someone who intended to set the slave free, it was said that he had redeemed the slave. I equated that with the days when we used to go to the Green Stamp store to redeem the Redemption Center to trade our stamps in for something we wanted. We redeemed them. We gave up something we had in order to get something we wanted. I'm dating myself again. <laughs> Who remembers what they called the price that was paid for that slave? What was it that a slave was redeemed by? The slave was purchased when a ransom had been paid. You and I have been redeemed, and that's the good news of this morning's lesson. John said, there is one who is coming, and I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. 
When you went to somebody's home, when you arrived in someone's home, having walked over the dusty roads of the region, a servant would come and take off your shoes and wash your feet. This was the custom of the day. But this wasn't a job assigned to just any servant. This was a job for the lowliest servant on the totem pole. This was seen as the lowliest of tasks. And John says, the one that I'm talking about, the one who is to come, the one who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, well, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. I'm not worthy to do the most meaningful task for the one who is about to come into our lives. That's how wonderful he'll be. There are three things that we might see in John's message this morning. As John was preparing the way for the one who was to come in great glory, he suggested that there were three things that the people should do. The first thing that John demanded of the people seems rather appropriate at this time of the year. In verse 11, John said, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has much food must do likewise. John was telling the people that God will never absolve the person who is content to have too much as long as there are those who have too little. People came to John who were, was preaching that, that the people were meant to bear good fruit. And they were asking what that meant. What were they meant to be doing? And John said, for starters, you might consider sharing what you have with others. That's what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, remember? The young man came to Jesus and asked, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the young man, as honestly as he could, said, Lord, I've done that all my life. And the scripture says that Jesus looked at the young man and that he loved him. Jesus looked into the face of this young man and he saw something that was good and honest. And then Jesus looked into the heart of the young man. He said, well, there's one more thing you can do. You can go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Well, you remember the story, what happened. The scripture tells us that the young man turned and walked away. Why? Because he had much stuff. And he was unwilling to let go of it. His stuff was just too important to him. But what would you have done in that situation? It's easy to read that story and say, well, isn't that a shame that the young man walked away? But what would you do if God told you this morning to go and sell everything you have and come and follow him? Would your response be any different? What if the vestry came to you in a few weeks and said, we want everybody to increase their offering next year by 10%. The next thing that John told the people was to stay and do the job that they were doing. John was preaching that the people should come and repent and be baptized. He was saying, you need to turn your lives around. That's what repentance means. To turn around and go the other way. To repent is to, is to make a U-turn in the middle of the road and to start going in the opposite direction. We've all heard stories about the New Testament tax collectors. They, they basically had a, a license to steal they could collect as much as they could and they could keep the excess to themselves. And the lesson tells us that the tax collectors were coming to John and said, I want to repent. But what do I do about my job? And John said, keep on being a tax collector. But from now on, be a good tax collector. Be an honest tax collector. There were those who were serving in the army who came to John and they asked, what should I do? And John didn't say, 
to search your post. He didn't say become a conscientious objector. No, he said go and be a good soldier. John was telling those who came to him, and he would tell us this morning, I think, a man's duty is to serve God wherever God has placed us. John was convinced that each of us is called to serve God wherever we are. The third thing we see in our lesson this morning is that John knew who he was. In verse 15, it says that the people were wondering if John was the Messiah. And John said, no, I'm merely here to prepare the way for the one who is far greater than I. John said, the one who is coming has a winnowing fork that he's in. Who knows what a winnowing fork is? It's not actually a fork at all. It, it, it's more like a flat wooden shovel. And, and you take the whittling fork or the shovel and, and you scoop up the grain and that had been harvested and then you throw it up in the air. And that the good grain, which was heavier, would fall back down to the ground and it'd be gathered up and stored. But the lightweight chaff would simply blow away later to be swept up and burned. John paints a rather grim picture of judgment. But at the same time, he assures the people that they need not fear the judgment if they have repented and been charitable to those in need, and if they've been faithful to their duties. For those who heard John's word, they were both warning and encouragement, and they could rejoice in the advent of the one who was to come if they heeded the words of the one who came to prepare the way. Look just a minute at our other readings this morning. In our three-year cycle of readings, today is the only time that we read from the minor prophet Zephaniah. And why do we call Zephaniah a minor prophet? Because his writings were short, not because they were less important. <laughs> Zephaniah was a prophet during the reign of King Josiah around 600 B.C. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah. And his writings describing the coming day of the Lord and the prophecies about doom and destruction of the sinful people of Judah. His message to the people was not unlike that of John when he calls on the people to repent. And he uses very graphic imagery to describe what God's judgment will be like. But also like John, Zephaniah concludes his writing with God's promise to cleanse and restore his people. And in this morning's lesson we hear a song of rejoicing over the redemption that God will bring about for his people. And then in the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the, to the Philippians, we, we, we have a reading that's been read on the third Sunday of Advent for centuries, literally. This is the lesson assigned for this day. And it's been read on the third Sunday of Advent for hundreds of years. And it bears out the theme of the day that I mentioned a moment ago. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul's looking forward to Jesus' second coming when he writes these words, Rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. At first glance, this might seem to be different from the message of John, but it's really just the same side or the other side of the same coin. Now these words, the Lord is near, is enough to strike fear in the heart of anyone who's not repenting. But for those who are faithful, for those who have accepted the challenge, to turn their life around. For those, the words, the Lord is near, is a reason to rejoice. Because with that knowledge comes the peace that Paul describes as surpassing all understanding. There's no doubt that Paul took sin just as seriously as John the Baptist did. 
bold men preach the message of redemption for all who would repent. But Paul and John believed that, that we could look to see a man's spiritual house to determine the virtue of that person. Paul continues with these words, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul said, keep your sights on those things that won't let you down. Seek those things in life that are worthy and honest. Surround yourself with those things that possess the dignity of holiness. Be a person of whom it can be said, duty faced, duty done. We heard words not too dissimilar from that just recently at the burial of President Bush just a few days ago. And we were reminded once again of the kind of life that we should all strive for. Paul says that we're to seek purity in our lives. And the word in the Greek that he uses here is a word that's used to describe something that is so clean that it can be brought into the presence of God. Paul suggests that there are some people whose minds are so set on revenge and punishment that they generate bitterness and fear in others. And there are those whose minds are so filled with criticism and rebuke that they bring out resentment in others. But he suggests that for the Christian, their minds should be so set on kindness, sympathy, and forgiveness that all those around are blessed and filled with love. Paul tells us that our speech should be described as something fit for God to hear, not words that are false or impure. Everything comes out of your mouth, something you'd want God to hear? He does, you know. And when we do these things, when we've learned to follow the models that are provided for us in the Scriptures, then we can come to know the God of peace. The God of peace, that's... That's one of the titles for God that Paul likes to use. He refers to God in these words many times in his letters to the New Testament churches. The God of peace is able to make life what it's meant to be. The God of peace enables you and me to enter into a relationship with him, into a fellowship with one another like no other. The words that we hear this morning on the third Sunday of the season of Advent is repent, rejoice, receive. Turn your life around. Experience God in your life in a new and exciting way and feel God's presence with you each day of your life. The season of Advent is rapidly drawing to an end. The Christmas season will soon be here. There's only eight more shopping days left. So try to spend this next few days focusing on the coming of the Christ child, on the King of Kings, on the Prince of Peace. Those who heard John preach were challenged to get themselves ready for the coming of Messiah. We today are challenged to be ready for his second coming. The first advent was a wonderful occasion, and the second advent will be as well. So think on that in the days to come. Let us stand.